Do you have your Bibles? Praise the Lord. The Word of God. We love the Word of God here. We spend a lot of time in our Bibles. Praise God. Here's where we learn of Jesus. From the Holy Word of God. Thank you, Lord. Let's look to the Lord as we study his Word this morning. Oh, Lord, in the name of Jesus, you've been so good to us to give us this Word. We appreciate it. We respect it. We know it has come from you. And we ask for your grace and help as we study your word this morning. In the name of your Holy Son, Jesus, the Christ, the Lamb of God, the Savior, our Healer, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace. In his name we pray. Amen. Praise God. If you would, brothers and sisters, go with me to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 17b. We're going to go right to the second half of the verse. And I imagine you could quote it right along with me. In fact, after I read it, we'll try saying it all together. This is Matthew 16, 17b. The words of Jesus, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Will you say that with me now? One, two, ready, go. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Praise the Lord. Little trivia about this verse. In it is the Greek word ecclesia and It is translated church. The Greek word ecclesia is translated church. And Jesus uses this word only three times in all the four Gospels. Zero times in the Gospel of Mark, zero times in the Gospel of Luke, zero times in the Gospel of John, three times here in Matthew, once in this verse, and twice in Matthew 18, 17. Of course, Jesus refers to the church many times in his teachings, even though he may not use the Greek word ecclesia, he refers to the church many times with symbolic language in referring to flocks of sheep. Thankfully, he doesn't refer to us as what? Rifters, rafters of turkeys? We're not turkeys. Flocks of sheep, households, families, banquets, and so forth. But only three times using the word church. As I've said many times before, he uses it once here referring to the universal body of Christ. All the believers in all places, in all times. If you've received the second birth, the second spiritual birth from the Holy Spirit, you're in. You're part of the church. You're part of the universal body of Christ. He uses ecclesia in Matthew 18 in reference to the church in a different way, as a local congregation, like Living Word Church is a local congregation. He refers to it in Matthew 16 and uh, using the word in reference to the universal church, and in Matthew 18, to a local assembly. 
In Matthew 18, the local body of believers are in relationship with each other. They know each other. They're accountable to each other. And Jesus even says the members of the church may put somebody out of the church who will not receive correction. So the accountability within that local assembly is real. So whenever we see the word church in the Bible, we have to discern whether it's a reference to the universal body of Jesus or the local assembly of the Lord. Back to Matthew 16, 17. Jesus has total faith in his own success. He sees a victorious future for the body of Christ. Who else but Jesus could have predicted 2,000 years ago how his church would multiply and spread over the world? It started with 12. It became 120 in the upper room in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And it went very quickly from 120 in the upper room to 12,000 people. And finally, from the upper room, it spread across the world to form thousands of local churches all over the world, in every nation, in every tongue, in every tribe, in every background, in every race, in every uh, financial status. Praise the Lord. People have been added. Churches have been planted. The influence of Jesus and his followers has spread across the world and brought into the world civilization and uh, the betterment of the world. Where Christians have risen up, so have wonderful institutions like orphanages and hospitals, schools, businesses, governments, under the influence of Jesus and his followers. Praise God. Today I want to talk to you about our call from Jesus to penetrate the minds and hearts of unbelievers, to penetrate unbelief with faith, praise God. We're charged with calling souls out of unbelief and into faith in Jesus Christ. When Jesus says this statement, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he is near a booming city in those days called Caesarea Philippi. You can see that in verse 13, where it says that they were in the coasts of Caesarea Philippi. In verse 13, it means they were in the region, they were in the area, they were near to it. It is a city that was at the foot of Mount Hermon. And at the foot of Mount Hermon, there was a literal place that was called the Gates of Hell or the Gates of Hades. It's where pagan people for centuries worshipped the Greek god Pan who's half man and half goat, according to Greek mythology. And the place to this day is called Banyas. Ban, a slight uh, 
modification of the Greek god's name Pan. Sometimes it's pronounced Panias. The Greeks and the Romans, after them, made shrines at the foot of Mount Hermon in this place, which becomes Caesarea Philippi. And not only did they build shrines, they committed sinful acts to encourage the gods of the underworld to come out of the cave that was at the base of Mount Hermon. And that cave was called the Gates of Hell or the Gates of Hades. It was thought, according to Greek mythology, that the gods retreated to the underworld of Hades every winter. You might almost believe it if you live in Syracuse, New York in the late fall. But the gods could be encouraged to come out, come out of Hades by this portal, this cave at the foot of Mount Hermon, to come out in the spring and make the world fertile again. I don't know if you can imagine what acts they did as part of their rituals to encourage the gods to uh, come forth and make the world fertile again, but you can't imagine them all. It's beyond dignity and propriety to speak of what they did in their rituals. Inside this cave, there's a water source. And it contributes, actually, to the beginnings of the Jordan River in northern Israel today. There are are a few springs in the locality at the foot of Mount Hermon, but this is one of them, that this water source is one of them that contributes to the formation of the Jordan River. Josephus wrote in the first century that people waited a rope and lowered it down into the water inside the cave in order to find how deep the, the pool was inside the cave and that no matter how long the rope was, they could never discover the bottom of the pool of water. And so they came to call this place the Gates of Hades or the Gates of Hell. You've got to ask yourself, what is Jesus doing? Bringing his servants to such an area, to such a place. It was the capital of the northern regions of the Bible lands, of the Holy Land at the time. It was ruled by one of the Herodian kings, King Philip. It was a booming town. Philip was building it up as fast as he could. Building and building, a lot of building and bustle. We're going on in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus brought his disciples to the region. So much sin, so much idolatry, so much, so many riches, so much money, so much building. It represented an entirely different worldview than what Jesus' disciples held. They were Jewish men and believed that they were with their Messiah and that he was teaching them as the Messiah would. 
And what they saw in Caesarea Philippi had nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with Judaism, nothing to do with the Messiah, nothing to do with the Jewish people. It was thoroughly steeped in Roman and Greek culture, mythology, rule, power, money, economics. It was a Greek-slash-Roman town. Jesus was offering his, a challenge to his followers by bringing them there. And it's a challenge that he's giving not only to his 12 followers, his 12 men, that he picked to be the first inner circle of disciples. But Jesus is like the stone dropped into a pond and Out from him there were 12 disciples and those disciples made disciples and those disciples made disciples and the kingdom of God is is building and the church is growing and building as Jesus said it would. Well, he brought his first inner circle to a very ungodly place. And it's a challenge to them and to all the believers of the universal body of Christ. It's a challenge to us. Not to hide from evil. Not to hide from perverted worldviews. But he wants us to prevail against them. Gates in the Bible world were very common. Good-sized towns in the Bible world had protective walls built around them with gates. This structure of wall and gates was ancient. It went back to before the children of Israel conquered the Promised Land. There were already walled cities with gates. It went back to before Abraham. Walled cities with their gates. And in fact, if you study gates in the Bible as a topic and inquire of the Holy Spirit, the symbolism used in gates, it's a great study in the Bible. And we're not really going to go there this morning. But these gates allowed citizens and commerce to come into the cities and kept enemies out of the cities. And so when Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, is he picturing his church hiding, protecting itself from evil, under siege of evil powers, behind walls, protective walls? Is a gate ever an offensive weapon? I think maybe it was Samson, the strong man Samson in the Bible, that tore a gate right off its hinges, and maybe he could hit you over the head with it. But generally speaking, gates are not offensive weapons. They're defensive in strategy and in use. A gate is installed to defend a city. And perhaps Jesus could point to the cave at the foot of Mount Hermon, Or perhaps he and his disciples were sitting near one of the gates to the city of Caesarea Philippi. He was saying, 
men, we're going to take them. We're going to take the cities. We're going to take the world. We're going to take the unbelievers. We're going to prevail. The gates and the walls inside which the unbeliever hides are not going to be able to resist the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. We're going to take them with the truth. The truth that, Peter, you're confessing now. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, flesh and bones has not revealed this to you, Simon, but my Father which is in heaven. And this is the rock on which I'll build my church. Maybe they're looking up at Mount Hermon. This is not the rock from which goodness flows out of a gate. But belief that I am the chosen of God, the called of God, his special servant, the son of the living God, on that rock of faith will I build my church. Praise God. He and his disciples may have been sitting near a gate of the city of Caesarea Philippi and watching materials flow into that, through that gate in order to build more temples and shrines and structures and palaces and mansions. Or they may have been watching goods and things to buy and sell and foods of all different kinds. Whatever would please King Philip. But Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the truth of God. The defenses will not stand up against the one who's prophesied to come. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that we are part of that promise. And we are part of the universal body of Christ. And we register as a local church, a local assembly, as Jesus described it, in relationship with one another, knowing one another, and accountable to one another. Is it true? And this promises to us that we will go farther and succeed more deeply than we as a church yet have. We've succeeded. We have prevailed. God does wonderful things. But let's not tell stories about what we've done. Let's nurture the dreams of faith and what we will do. Remember what got King David in trouble. He was supposed to go out to battle in the spring and do battle at the very edges of his kingdom. Instead, he stayed in his palace within his own protective walls where life was easy and life was good. He allowed his faithful warriors like Joab and Uriah to go forth into battle while he stayed home. And while he stayed out of the battle and had little to do, he began gazing at Bathsheba the beauty. And one thing led to another and David becomes an adulterer and a murderer. I will tell you, brothers and sisters, a kingdom 
is growing or it's dying. And that's why the kings had to go forth to battle every spring. Well, the same is true of a believer in Jesus Christ. You're growing or you're dying. You're going forward or you're retreating and receding. And the same is true of a church, of a local church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is growing or it is dying. And it is God's will that our church would grow, not that our church would die. We are called to win hearts for Jesus. We're not called to win military contests or secure boundaries. Our warfare is not that fleshy. It's not that territorial. It's not that carnally territorial. We're to win against the strongholds that bind souls to evil. Do not let the devil win with his defensive positions. You know, there are a thousand reasons to be living in sin. A thousand rationalizations, a thousand excuses, a thousand reasons to be living in sin. I want to tell you, we only need one reason to stop living in sin, and it's a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He's got the power to make us free. We don't need to bring up our hundreds of reasons why we need to sin. We need to bring up the one Savior from sin, death, and the power of sin. His name is Jesus. Amen? The devil is the one who's inside the walls of sin and death, ignorance and unbelief. And I will tell you, in our modern secular America, people feel settled in their unbelief. Even if they're unhappy, anxious, fearful, depressed, they feel settled in their unbelief. They don't see themselves as being shaken out of it, moved out of it. They're just settled behind walls, behind self-made walls. They're not interested in going to church. They're not interested in reading the Bible. We have to help them come out. Jesus, when he says these words, he is at a center of paganism. But he's claiming victory for God. Let's think about somebody's uh, path to Christ and compare it to uh, the path so many of us take to marriage. Why do I say that? Because when we get married, we make a commitment. But you know, the path to marriage always starts from ground zero. Especially in our world where we don't have matchmakers and arranged marriages in our culture. Anybody want to go back to that? All the parents will raise their hands. Rich, did you put your hand up? Good, that's it. Good job, Brother Rich. Anna is not even cracking a smile right now. Well, in our culture, we don't have arranged marriages, so what happens is a couple goes from zero to commitment, don't they? Right? They go from zero to commitment. You didn't even know each other to say hi at the beginning. Then you said hi. Then you chatted. Then you watched each other a little more. 
Then you chatted some more. Then you started doing some things together. Then you chatted a lot. You became friends. You got so you trusted one another. You convinced each other. And finally, you made a commitment. Isn't that how it goes in our culture and in our world when you go from zero relationship all the way to full lifetime until death parts us? Commitment. Amen? Well, I want you to think for a second. What are we asking of people who commit to the Lord Jesus Christ? A process is needed for many believers nowadays. You have to bring them from zero relationship to Jesus. They don't even know how to say hi to Jesus yet. They don't even know how to hear a little bit from the Bible, from the Word of God. Jesus and the Word of God are not in their minds. And it may take time and relationship and visits and phone calls and a lot of chatting and a lot of assurances to get somebody to finally come to a place of trust, assurance, and confidence in Jesus Christ to make that commitment. We did it with our spouses. We went from zero to lifetime commitment with our spouses. If anything, the commitment to Jesus Christ is even a stronger and more powerful commitment in our hearts. Our commitment to Jesus is stronger in our hearts than our commitment even to our spouses. Why would we expect that it would be a cinch for people to hear the gospel and commit their lives to Jesus Christ just like that? We're asking them to make a lifetime commitment to the Lord. It may take assurances and visits and chat and phone calls and assurances and explanations and relationship. They don't really care how much you know. They want to know how much you care. Notice Jesus says in this verse, build. I will build my church. Building is intentional. It occurs within a process. There's an order to it. Generally, you build from the bottom up. You start at the bottom and you build your way up. Generally, you start at structural elements and you gradually move towards decorative elements. It has process. Building is productive. At the end of the day, you have something that didn't exist at the beginning of the day. That's awesome about building. I've done a lot of construction in my lifetime, and that is the thing I like the best about it. I like the physicality of it. I really enjoy the physicality of it. I imagine that I won't be building anything shortly because of the physicality of it. (laughs) But when I was in my 20s, I loved climbing around on the buildings and high places and walking walls and stuff like that. But another thing I like about building besides the physicality of it is that at the beginning of the day, there was nothing. And at the end of the day, there was something. Praise God. It's exciting. You're creating something that was not there. And if Jesus is building his church, he's going to be creating something that was not there. 
It's not only our job to find what is there, it's also to create something that wasn't there, for Jesus to use us to establish faith where there was no faith. Don't be discouraged if there is no faith. Build. Create. Jesus, when he says this verse, can point to an enormous rock, Mount Hermon. It's covered with snow much of the year. And in that rock was a cave called the Gates of Hell. But he was talking about a different rock. The rock of enlightenment. The rock of realization. Not a hole in the earth. A high place. A high spiritual place from which you could soar heavenward, praise God. Faith in Jesus Christ. Wednesday evening, I showed you that the Lord not only told the leader Joshua, be strong and courageous, leader Joshua, but I showed you he had that, the Lord had that message for the entire congregation as they went into the promised land. And let's see a little bit about what the courageous did. If you would turn with me to Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. I'm going to get off the subject for a second here. In Joshua 5, 13, but I hate to skip it. Praise God for the word of God. Joshua 5, 13. We read, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him, with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? You think this is probably Jesus? I do. And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thy standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Who else makes a plot of ground holy? Who else receives worship but the Lord? Well, first things first. Joshua needs to give respect and recognition to his Lord. Instructions would come after proper respect. The Lord is not with his warriors the same way he's with everyone everywhere. Yes, there is such a thing as the omnipresence of God, but what we're seeing in this page is not the omnipresence of God. It's the special presence of God that makes a little plot of ground holy. The Bible stresses the prime importance of the special presence of God, which is with his people as they accomplish his purposes. The Lord says, Fear thou not, O Jacob, my servant, saith the Lord, for I am with thee. I am with thee. It's a holy thing to be used by the Lord to pull down strongholds of ignorance and strongholds of unbelief. Strongholds of fear and sin. Let's jump ahead 
to the familiar account of the walls of Jericho in chapter 6 and verse 3. Here are the instructions of the captain of the Lord's host. He said, you shall compass the city, Joshua 6, 3. You shall compass the city. In other words, walk around the city. You shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus thou shalt do six days. And seven priests shall bear the ark, seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times. The priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. The wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up, every man straight before him. What's all this business about circling the city? You see, Jericho was the first city that the uh, nation of Israel would conquer in the promised land, and in a sense, it creates the pattern. The first one creates is the prototype. It's the type. Not that... Uh, Joshua would lead the children of Israel to victory in this exact way of marching the army around the city once for six days and seven times on the seventh day that there would be a trumpet blast and a shout. In fact, Jericho is the only city that's taken by this method. If you look at the conquest of of Canaan land, you'll see that Joshua led his people many different ways to conquer many different cities. There's a great variety of ways that they used. But this, in a sense, tells some messages that could never be violated if Israel was going to be successful in conquering Canaan land. What is it about circling the city? Do you remember how the unfaithful spies, 40 years prior to this event, reacted to seeing the walls and the gates of the cities in Canaan land? Ah, they cried. The cities and the walls are very great. We're not able to go up against this people. They're stronger than we are. They noticed the walls, the gates of the Canaanite cities. What does this circling of Jericho mean? I want to tell you that it means faith and focus and finishing. Faith, focus, and finishing. Faith, first of all. The city was already encircled by a wall. Walking around the city... For six days was serving notice to the city that those walls would not prevail to protect them. It was an exercise in faith for the children of Israel. They were not to act like Jericho. The Bible said Jericho was a city straightly shut up and under siege. Instead, brothers and sisters, we are not to be like Jericho. We are to be like the children of Israel and show our determination of faith. We're not to be fearful hiders. The church is not called to be fearful hiders. 
It is called to be wall destroyers, gate openers, not hiders, not fearful hiders. We are to be like Israel and show our determination to bring faith to the table and make faith the answer. We're to be faith-filled circlers. Who is circling whom? Brothers and sisters, who is circling whom here? Are the children of Israel not circling Jericho? The unbelievers, amen? You know what I hear us talking about more than that? I hear us talking about how we are being circled. That's what I hear all the time coming out of our mouths. We're being circled. We're surrounded by evil. Oh, do you see how evil is spreading? Oh, do you see how evil is having its way? Oh, do you see uh, uh, how it's just spreading and, and we have to take shelter from all this great spread of evil? Well, I'll tell you that they couldn't be more evil in Jericho. There was a pagan city and they didn't believe in God. But the children of Israel didn't circle and go on the defensive and wind up getting walked around by Jericho. Instead, it was the other way around. The children of God were walking around Jericho by faith. I said faith, focus, and finishing. Second is focus. The children of Israel, by walking around that city every day, learned the protections of that wall inch by inch. They knew that wall very well. They saw it for seven days. They saw for seven days a red thread hanging down from the window of Rahab the harlot, whose, whose home was on the wall of the city. And she was instructed by Israelites that she sheltered. If you want to be saved, you hang that red thread in your window and we'll know where you are. And we will protect you and we'll save you and your household alive. It was something like the blood of the lamb that the children of Israel put on their doorposts, wasn't it? A red thread. It reminds us that the blood of Jesus Christ makes us safe from sin and death, from the penalty and from the power. The blood of Jesus is the atoning price. That red needs to be in our lives, amen? For seven days, they walked around that city and they came to know it very well. They were focused. They were not getting off track. They were following in the process. They were identifying Rahab, the hungry one. Brothers and sisters, we also, with our focus, have to show central New York that we care. Just as the Lord saw Rahab's faith, we need to set our eyes on individuals and demonstrate that we care too much to leave them alone. Circle them. Call them. Invite them to tea. Go take a look at their project. Let them teach you something about how their project, their wallpaper job, their carpentry job, their quilting, they're knitting. Let them teach you something about that and you teach them something about Jesus. Show them you care. Circle them. Again and again. The children of Israel were telling Jericho the same thing they were telling every every city in Canaan land. We're not going away. 
we're not going away. Every morning, the citizens of Jericho looked out and said, there they are again. They came back. They're not taking no for an answer. I don't understand them. Rahab understood. We're focused because we care. And we're not going to go away because we care. Show folks your faith. Show folks you care. Faith, focus, finish. The third thing is finish. The walls finally fell, didn't they? Brothers and sisters, you also need patience to see the Lord set those who are captives behind the walls of secular humanism to see the light. Rahab was saved, Joshua 6, 17. The second half of the verse says, Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. The awesome call of God for Israel to bring salvation to the world spread to a Canaanite woman. According to Matthew's gospel, Rahab becomes one of the literal ancestors of Jesus Christ. A grandma of Jesus Christ. They didn't go to another city. They didn't take a break. They were focused on Jericho and determined to win it. The first city staked the claims. We're not going away. They could not expect success, brothers and sisters, if the captain of the Lord of hosts said, circle the city once, each for, once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day. If they would have done only six days instead of seven, only five days instead of six, only six times around the city when they were told to go seven times around the city, they wouldn't have finished. And do you think the walls would have fallen? You've got to have faith, you've got to have focus, and you've got to finish. It's going to take patience. The children of Israel didn't move along to another city when the walls didn't fall on day six. They could not expect success if they did less than the captain of the Lord of hosts told them to do. Brothers and sisters, I say, may we print the word of God on the doorposts of central New York. God wants to use you to bring in a new harvest of souls. It is not going to be easy because we have a lot to learn. Souls are not coming to Christ in the old, much easier ways because they are not believers. They're not sensitive to the Bible. We have to be missionaries in our own neighborhoods, in our own workplaces, and even in our families. We have to circle them with care and concern, with patience and faith. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, the gates of hell will not prevail against the rock of faith. The walls of ignorance and mistrust will fall. When Israel circled the city, they were not showing how much they knew. They were showing how much they cared. They were showing how determined they were. 
It was the promise of God to Abraham, quote, thy seed shall possess the gate of thine enemies. There was a prophetic prayer for Rebekah, the wife of Abraham's son Isaac, quote, let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. Do not look at the enemies and look at those that hate us and say, erect the walls higher, make the gates stronger, lock the doors tighter in order for us to protect ourselves from our enemies. Instead, reach out for the promise of God to Abraham and to Rebekah and to the whole universal church of of the body of Christ that you will possess their gates, that their gates of defense will not prevail against the word of God. God's way is not for us to hide from our enemies. It is to break through to them so that they may be saved, so that they may be loved, so that they may be cared for. God desires that all men would be saved. Amen? He is waiting right now, is he not, for the last soul to come into the kingdom of God before he comes again. Isn't he? And may God use us not to be circled and to retreat in fear, but instead to do the circling and the conquering and the prevailing of, against doubt and sin, death, depression, anger, fear, anxiety, all the things that are plaguing our world. May we be the circlers who care and proceed with focus, faith, focus, and finishing in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. That's all for today. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus.